This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen, the Christianity Today podcast, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I am Caitlin Beatty, the print managing editor of Christianity Today magazine, coming to you from the lovely Carol Stream, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Morgan Lee. Hi, Morgan. Caitlin, it's great to be here today. Hi to all of our listeners. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and today we are joined by Kevin Dendulk. He is the chair of the political science department at Calvin College. He is also the executive director of the Paul Henry Institute, which we recently learned is actually named after the son of Carl Henry. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. So as our listeners know, every week we go behind um, the complexities and tensions of a story that's in the news. We try to acknowledge those tensions, acknowledge our thoughts and feelings, and then work out as best we can how Christians can respond. And this week we'll be talking about the especially complex story about the ongoing Flint water crisis. Um, the news of that broke several months ago. We've seen a lot of the headlines and tweets that are expressing outrage and grief, understandably. Last week, there were a series of congressional hearings involving several key political figures in Flint. Um, the Flint mayor basically said that the state of Michigan is to blame. So we wanted to get Kevin here, especially because you are in Michigan. So you're cl- a lot closer to what's going on in Flint than we are here in Illinois. And then also, you have written Kevin for Capital Commentary and then for the Washington Post on the Flint water crisis and kind of more generally our political structures and how they serve or in this case don't always serve the common good. So thank you again for being with us. So we're going to start with our gut check. And this is the time when we just acknowledge that for a lot of things going on in our world, we have kind of this initial reaction um, that we want to get out on the table before digging into the deeper issue. So we try to keep this short. You're a short gut check. And I'll start with Morgan before hearing from Kevin. So Morgan, what was your gut check on the Flint water crisis? When I hear that this crisis is in the U.S., I'm surprised. And when I hear about who in the U.S. this affected, I sadly wasn't. Hmm. Hmm. Obviously, a lot to unpack there. What about you, Kevin? What's your gut check on the story of Flint? Mm, Morgan almost stole my thunder there, although I, I might put it uh, differently. I'm not entirely surprised that it happened in the U.S., uh, but what I am surprised about is um, how many people uh, took it for granted uh, that, in fact, water and the way we get our water is a matter of politics. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. I had a slightly different gut check, and I admit that I called this from Twitter. So today is World Water Day, and I saw a tweet from someone saying, I'm grateful that I can drink clean water from my tap. So just acknowledging mm. there, here is this amazing yep. modern gift that keeps us healthy. And I, how many days do I go by not even thinking about the fact that I can just go to the tap and drink clean water. So 
All right. Well, we'll start with kind of a question about um, the government. So that's the obviously, Kevin, that's kind of your your specialty as a political scientist at Calvin College. So a lot of the media coverage of Flint has centered on what what is the role? What's the responsibility of local, state and federal government in keeping us from contamination, from keeping citizens healthy, from clearly communicating when there's a structural issue. So what do government bodies kind of owe us, so to speak, as citizens? What do we expect from our government leaders? What role should they play um, from a Christian perspective? Wow, that's a big question. Um, You know, I think the first thing I would say is that when it comes to a basic good like water, we can expect a great deal uh, from our government. And that isn't um, simply to protect us from contamination, but when it, as you put it a second ago, but it's also uh, that the government has a, a crucial role in simply distributing water, getting water to us in our homes and, and to um, farms and, and to other uses. Hmm. Um, so it's both about distributing it and uh, keeping it clean. And I think it's entirely appropriate for Christians to think about something as basic as water as as, um, having in saying that government has a role in providing it. That isn't to say, though, that, of course, government uh, would have the same sort of role in providing other kinds of goods. So if you're asking the more general question of me, I would say that government has a role to play in ensuring um, some level of what some of us, some Christians, um, call public justice um, to make sure that institutions, other kinds of organizations that provide lots of different goods in our lives um, are able to do that. They're able to do that well. And sometimes that's um, that simply means that government provides those institutions the freedom, uh, protects their freedom uh, to do good work. But it isn't that government is providing a good directly. What I'm getting at here is we can talk about different types of goods in different ways. And we talk about the role that government might play with respect to those goods um, in different ways. Water is a basic good, is a public good. Um, it seems to me government has this crucial and even direct role to play in distributing it and making sure that it's it's clean, free of contaminants for our use. Hmm. You know, Caitlin, when I was listening to these questions, I thought back to my own politics days and about John Locke and the idea of the social contract and just this agreement that the government makes with the citizens that it governs. And so there there are different types of agreements, right, that different governments will make with their citizens. But in this case, in the country that we live in, we expect the government to deliver on the promises that it makes to us. And water is one of those things that appears in some ways to just be a given. It's something that you take for granted that you can believe the government's word when you get water about that it will keep you healthy, that it won't make you sick. Um, there's, a, there's a certain kind of like baseline standard. In the same way, mm-hmm. we we've come to rely on the government to like look after the food that we eat and test that or to put in pasteurization laws. There's different levels of security that the government has decided to take on as a type of like mm-hmm. ownership. And once it's kind of taken that responsibility, there's no real, there should be no real leeway for it to abdicate those. And I think we can all agree to disagree in some ways about what those goods are that the government, um, I think Kevin was alluding to this a little bit, is going to agree to provide. But once it has agreed to provide them, it's not something you can just back down on mm-hmm. or say it was an accident mm-hmm. when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, 
I mean, as you put it, it's interesting that you bring up Locke here. Yeah, Morgan gets 50 points for mentioning John Locke. <laughs> I, I'm going to try to work in Hobbes at some point, who I, who I know from Calvin and Hobbes primarily. Yeah, but let's let's try not to work in Hobbes because then we're it's going to get scary pretty quick. <laughs> no, okay. but Hobbes is the one that's like we could say that people in Flint, their lives are not going to be nasty and brutish and short if they continue to drink poisonous water. Yeah, that's the Hobbesian take on yeah. Flint. Okay. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, this is the sort of good that we simply take for granted, right? We just turn on the tap um, and water comes out and we assume that it's clean. And we don't necessarily even uh, connect that at all to a role for government. Very rarely would anyone think of it until everything goes wrong. And now, of course, we have to react. Um, but we don't necessarily think proactively about our infrastructure um, and, and that sort of thing, um, because, again, we, we sort of take that for granted. And it's hard for me to say, oh, there's some sort of civil uh, silver lining to what happened in Flint. Um, mm-hmm. But at the very least, we can say that um, people, uh, at least in this area, and I think given the kind of coverage that this has had nationwide, um, people just aren't going to take that as uh, for granted, um, at least in the near term. So, yeah, in in one sense, the fact that we don't think about the infrastructure providing our water, we don't think about the government's provision or protection of clean water for us, suggests that in a lot of circumstances, the, the system is working as it should. Government bodies are are making good on their promise. It's when the government doesn't make good on its promise when there's a systemic breakdown, whether of of communication or not providing information or not investing the money needed to ensure this public good that we realize, oh my gosh, the consequences are so great. I mean, you think about the children, you know, a lot of the news coverage has been about the children in Flint. These are innocent lives that could be you know, really negatively affected and damaged because of this um, terrible oversight. So we'll come back to another water crisis in the United States of a, of a different caliber, and that's in California. But I want to talk a little bit about water itself. Obviously, it's essential to life. You can't live without clean water for more than a few days. So in this sense, we could say, you know, the residents of Flint were treated inhumanely. They were denied a basic human good. I'd love to hear a little bit from you, Kevin, about whether we could talk about water as a civil, uh, a basic human right or a civil right. Um, is that helpful language? Like, how would you articulate like a public theology of water? Mm. On the spot. <laughs> yeah, on the spot. You, you know, you could make a, um, argument, a kind of, um, public theological argument about water without necessarily invoking, um, human rights. But I think it's appropriate, especially in this case. I mean, if there is, um, some sort of right that we have to a good, it has to be, it has to include, if there's some list of those human rights, it would have to include access to clean water. Because life, we can't flourish without it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the uh, United Nations has has done as much. Fairly recently, surprisingly recently, um, the United Nations did declare water as a right. And that has some implications then for how countries um, or part of the UN do their work. It isn't a human right simply because the UN declared it so, of course. And I think from 
Christian perspective, um, we can certainly argue that people ought to be able to claim claim this good, and in claiming that good, uh, say that they have a right to this good. And of course, when we say that someone has a right to something, that puts uh, obligations on other people. You know, if I have a claim to water or anything else, uh, if I have a right to water or anything else, um, that means that others have some duty to either uh, either protect that right for me or even provide it to me. And so, you know, g- given the fact that I would argue um, that justice, public justice requires that people have access to water, I think it's appropriate to say that people have a right to it because that puts obligations on others to provide it. I would agree with that sense of that the right language is is, is, is far more expansive and there's just far more broader reaching responsibilities um, that of, of the questions that it asks for society. You know, it's mm. not something that becomes a luxury good or something that certain societies can afford, but others cannot. Um, and the fact that water is something that you can only go a certain number of days slash hours without mm-hmm. drinking or consuming or using in some capacity to mean means that like, how could it not be seen as the most fundamental basic right? It seems like, you know, one of the big elephants in the room regarding what happened in Flint is how this played out across socioeconomic and racial lines and and how you know you might say this wouldn't have happened in Grand Rapids Michigan not to put Grand Rapids on the spot but is that part of the conversation that you're hearing Kevin maybe especially in Michigan and kind of this kind of divide between like West Michigan and then Central and East Michigan well I don't know that I'm not hearing it as much in terms of a regional divide within the state I would say uh Surely we've been having a conversation in the state and nationwide about the fact that there is a clear socioeconomic um, dimension to this this Mm -hmm. discussion. Right. And those same kinds of questions could be asked within my own city of Grand Rapids, um, where there's a great deal of socioeconomic um, segregation. And so. Yeah, that, and and of course, um, in addition, race cuts across um, socioeconomics in in um, the case of Flint. So, right. how does that matter? Well, it matters, I think, in a variety of ways. One of the ways is um, simply the political voice that people uh, had in Flint. They were at that time under an emergency manager, and the emergency manager was imposed. Maybe that's the right word here. Certainly, people in Flint would use that word. Uh, on the city um, by the state, uh, in part because the state was concerned about the fiscal um, status of the of the city at the time, and and what that meant, the emergency manager was uh, governing the area, and that meant that uh, people who would uh, be ordinarily elected um, to positions and therefore responsive, um, we hope, to the people were not in a position um, where they could represent the interests of of people in the community. So one of the critiques coming out of this is that the issue in Flint was partially related um, to the fact that there wasn't um, representation and really wasn't a, a easy there there wasn't a, a straightforward mechanism for representation of people living in the city. So that's that's one issue, and it's hard to imagine that um, the same kind of imposition of an emergency manager would have happened in a wealthy city, right? Um, right, right. So there's that dimension to it. You know, to what extent were people being represented um, in their interests? 
but also to what extent were people um, given information, what, whether or not there was an emergency manager, to what extent did people even recognize that there could be a problem uh, with their water? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a kind of civic educational dimension to this that I think is really important to think through. I'm wondering, too, how much of the entire Flint disaster just kind of defies people's ideas of what a disaster actually looks like as well. I know that particular organizations that do clean water initiatives, such as World Vision, I went to one of their launches for a clean water initiative a couple of years ago, and it's a little bit more difficult thing to sell in some ways because you don't have some of what people might call like the catastrophe porn to sell along with it. Some of these really, really stark images that kind of create a visceral reaction in you and clean water doesn't necessarily have that same that same look that same image that same scope except when you see the images of the water in flint and then you i think that's what drove it home for me can you imagine that water coming out of your faucet and giving that to your child yeah those images were crucial although they didn't necessarily reveal the real underlying issue about lead and other kinds of contaminants the the actual look of that water um doesn't doesn't necessarily reflect that but um but i do think that's right i mean that this is a disaster which in some ways was happening underground right Mm. literally yeah literally right so these are are pipes that we don't see they just come into our homes and basements and 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 they they course through our walls Mm. um and and they're out of sight and out of our mind um until the water and, you know, the lead contamination and other sorts of contaminants um, wouldn't have been revealed uh, simply in the color of that water. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that is out of sight. So the visuals, I mean, we've become a visual culture. The visuals were not there. This episode is brought to you by the Truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I want to shift gears a little bit to another water crisis of sorts happening in California, which I'll admit, as someone who doesn't live in California, I just see these headlines and I don't I don't quite understand all the intricacies of it. But Kevin is a Californian natively and Morgan is from California as well. And I actually was born in California, although I don't remember that part of my life. So (laughs) I wanted to hear from two Californians about the severe water shortages happening in California, and how this like compares or contrasts to what's happening in Flint. So kind of as a proxy, um, you know, is what's happening in California, quote unquote, a natural problem owing to low rainfall? Is it caused by humans in the way that we can say, you know, the the crisis in Flint was pretty 
directly caused by human institutions, at least. But is it the same for the case in California? And then should we should people outside of California know, you know, we're all in the Midwest now, like, why should we care about what's happening in California? Where I grew up was the agricultural breadbasket. I grew up in the Central Valley of California. I grew up in an agricultural world and I was part of that um, and still have a lot of family who are part of that. And so your question about whether it's a, a natural problem or a human made one, it's a combination, surely. Um, you know, the California, especially that area, the breadbasket area, the Central Valley is in many respects an irrigated desert. Um, it's a not quite a desert, technically speaking, but it gets about 10 to dozen, you know, inches of rain a year. Um, and that, that's not sufficient to support most crops. Um, certainly it's not sufficient to support the crops that are there now. And so, um, what that means is that the state has this large, essentially, uh, kind of plump, you know, this enormous plumbing system that moves water from the Sierra Nevada and from other in the Cascades and from other sources and, and moves it into the Central Valley to uh, provide sources of water for agriculture and actually moves it, of course, through the rest of the state um, for uses in agriculture, industry, and, of course, for personal um, home use. Um, and so California can't be California without um, that kind of snowpack and um, the movement of that water through this large plumbing system, which was created by government, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, the, the reservoir system, canal systems, and so forth. If you have a drought, as, as California does now, um, and the state isn't getting that same amount of snowpack, surface water, it simply can't support the, the demand um, that those, uh, those systems have downstream. Now, is that, could human beings make decisions that redistributed water in a way um, that would lessen the natural problem that or challenge that Californians are, are facing. That's really, for me, the, the big um, challenge mm -hmm. question. Could you change policy in a way that really had an impact on domestic use, home use, personal use, um, on industrial use, and especially on agricultural use? Agri agriculture um, nationwide, really worldwide, uh, takes up about um, two thirds of, of actual um, fresh water that we mm -hmm. might use. Um, in California, that's about 80% um, because of, you know, the high level of agriculture in that area. So if we're going to talk about policy related to water, Flint notwithstanding, right? Um, if we're going to talk about policy related to water, you have to start thinking about the variety of ways that we value this good, hmm. right? Hmm. It's not just, you know, what comes out of our tap, but it's mm -hmm. also what's in our refrigerator and, um, you know, the industrial uses for making clothing, um, or even recreational use. There are lots of ways that we value water and policy um, can support um, different ways. It can actually uh, create that value. I'm just going to add that, you know, Caitlin, you asked if people outside California should care about the drought. And I wouldn't change that should to how have they cared about it and just say that the way that I've seen people have is reacting to increases in produce prices since California does export so much of its crops to other parts of the U.S. And so you, in many ways, you're almost forced to care in some mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. about these particular issues. A little bit more broadly than that, some of the research that I looked up was trying to decide the link between climate change and the droughts. And 
the biggest, most general thesis I saw connected to that was essentially that the drought that California endured the past couple of seasons had strongly resembled previous droughts, um, but the effects of the drought were that much worse because rising temperatures had actually dried out the hmm. soil faster. Um, and that obviously um, caused more rapid evaporation from streams and rivers. And so that had been one of the problems. So we're going to wrap up there. I wanted to thank both Morgan and Kevin for helping us go deeper into this issue. We want to hear from our listeners and you can chime in if there are different dimensions of the Flint water crisis that we didn't bring up that you have thought through, want to share. You can do that on Twitter. Our handle is at CT Podcasts. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash CT podcasts. I think, you know, obviously there's no like solution to the Flint water crisis that we were going to reach today. But at the very least, it's a reminder to me that when we talk about fallenness, you know, we and, and sin, it cuts not just into individual hearts, but it cuts across human institutions and our, our systems as well. And I'm also going to sound like a good uh, Calvinist for a second and say that government is a good given to us by God to distribute or to protect certain certain goods in our common life together. And, uh, you know, because of common grace, another Calvinist, <laughs> another good phrase I learned at Calvin, um, a lot of the times these these systems and structures work well and and do lead to our flourishing. But when they don't, we have disastrous consequences on our hands, as we're seeing right now. And now we've reached the part of the show that we're calling Precious Moments. This is the part of the show where we go around and share one thing, person, place, television show that's giving us joy. And we also share where people can follow us online. So we'll start with you, Kevin. What is making you happy or joyful this week? Well, the way you just described government in this deeply reformed way, that makes me very happy. Good. I also have a little strange uh, happiness here in the sense that, um, you know, I'm a political scientist. And, of course, we're paying very close attention, all of us are, um, to the election. And whatever you might think about the election, and it's been, um, in, in many respects, hard for many of us to watch. One of the things I'm happy about, or at least heartened by, is the extent to which people are really paying attention. Mm-hmm and talking to each other um, about politics in a way that I hadn't heard for some years, really. Mm, yeah, that's good. And then where can we where can we find you or read more of what you're working on, Kevin? Our web address at the Henry Institute is calvin.edu slash Henry. And our Twitter handle, we're, we're still kind of getting that um, going, mm-hmm. um, but Henry and underline Institute. Great. Thank you. What about you, Morgan? One thing that's making me happy right now is that some of the youth in the neighborhood in, um, I live on the west side of Chicago. So one of the, or the neighborhood that I specifically live in is called East Garfield Park. And some of the young people in my neighborhood in tandem with one of the organizations that work specifically in this neighborhood are in the process of doing a giant oral history project. So one of the Chicago museums basically realized that they had a lapse in the history of my particular neighborhood. And so they partnered with Breakthrough, which is the organization running this, to have young people go and interview a lot of the longtime residents in there. Um, so I'm going to be writing about this for this organization's newsletter, and I'm excited to get in touch with all the people who are working on this project. Um, they're also going to be photographing a lot of the old-time residents, hmm. and then they will be producing a documentary that will actually play later this summer. That's really cool. Yeah. Where can we find you? 
My Twitter handle is M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Awesome. Well, the thing that's giving me joy this week is a roundtable conversation I'm attending in Kentucky in the next couple days, hosted by the Institute for American Values. Um, David Blinkenhorn is the uh, president there, and he's written for our magazine several times. And I am just looking forward to um, having good conversations and making good friendships there. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Caitlin Beatty. Well, that is it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And we also want to give a special shout out to Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And this is very important. We are a baby podcast. We are just taking our first steps. So we need support from listeners like you. And one way you can chime in and offer support is to go to iTunes where you can rate and review us. That really matters a lot. And that keeps us able to keep producing shows like this that we know you enjoy a lot. Help us break through all the sermons on the top lists. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, help us break through all the sermons. All right. Thanks again. See you next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.